Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. My name is Malek Banat. I'm joined today by uh, Wojciech Przybilski. We here at Visegrad Inside welcome all our listeners. Hi Wojciech. Hello, hi Malik. Light shines brightest in the dark. This is a quote from Ursula von der Leyen's recent speech to the European Parliament, her third State of Union address, which uh, had a, a significant focus on emphasizing Central and Eastern European voices. Uh, what is your take on that, Wojciech? What- this is particularly interesting that she uh, emphasized Central European voices so much and the need of, uh, of, of listening uh, to Central Eastern Europeans when it comes uh, to Russia, But she, uh, she had this quote saying that we should have listened to you a little bit open-ended. And I think um, in the State of the Union that we have heard only last week, uh, Ursula von der Leyen um, basically described something more than the, just the context of Russia and Russian aggression of Ukraine uh, as the center of gravity in the transatlantic space have indeed seemed to have moved uh, closer to Central and Eastern Europe uh, because of security, but also because of the promise and hope for the Ukraine victory in the war against the Russian invasion. Uh, An invitation to read our very own report that came out just last week, uh, titled uh, War and the Future of Europe. And uh, the, the question I want to ask you about uh, going off from the speech is um, what sort of impact has the war on uh, the war in Ukraine had on uh, the foresight exercises you envision in Berlin? Well, the war came much unexpected, although in the, our previous exercises we stipulated uh, what would happen to the Eastern European space if uh, the so-called Russian hegemony would be revisited. In our previous foresight report, uh, part of the broader exercise that we conducted with the German Marshall Fund, we had the scenario of Russian hegemony revisited. But strangely enough, when thinking about the future of Europe, we, we didn't hear many voices at the beginning of this exercise that started in 2021 about the possible aggression and much of the focus of the leaders of of civil society, opinion leaders in Central Eastern Europe, were not really picking up uh, that ball. We're not considering how important the potential aggression of Russia on one of its neighbors outside of the EU, but still neighboring with the EU, um, how much impactful it would be uh, for the the future of, of the continent. And for the remaining past uh, six months, the, the, the months in which we deliberated, we organized workshop discussions, uh, we did uh, a lot of this desktop research, and we all experienced, especially kind of, you know, being here in, in Central Eastern Europe, uh, we experienced the, the troubles, the, uh, uh, also the, the, the beautiful moments of solidarity uh, that were exposed that indeed changed i would say not everything but a lot but interestingly i think the scenarios that were pre-designed originally uh, and that were ready by the time the war uh, was about uh, to uh, to break out again in february 2022 
they haven't altered the general line of thinking in terms of what's the future of Europe. But the war became a catalyst that sped up um, the the processes and the trends that we are analyzing and explaining uh, in the report and the and also in the public discussions around uh, around this foresight. And uh, inevitably, in, uh, there are four scenarios, Wojtek, and in all of in all of them, um, the question of the role of EU institutions uh, comes at the forefront of uh, of the content. So, um, in my observation is that in uh, the two scenarios, EU and its institutions in Brussels become a more important and, relative, and relevant actors in the affairs of member states, whereas the same is true for the other two scenarios. Yes, as you mentioned, there are four, and the first two are are strictly related to the dynamism and positioning of European countries towards the war and to, towards Ukraine and Russia. And in the first scenario, we assume a situation in which there is uh, a change of power or change of leadership in in Kremlin and potential uh, moment of a ceasefire where when when Russian aggression is stopped mm, from much of an advance, uh, Currently, as we speak, Russia is not even advancing that much. It's uh, it's defending against Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, but you can imagine that there is a change of power in Russia in a foreseeable future. That, uh, for the sake of keeping territorial gains in Ukraine, among others, um, for the sake of keeping Crimea is willing to initiate immediate ceasefire, maybe even one-sided ceasefire, and appeal to, to, um, to common European public opinion on one hand and the political leaders um, for, uh, for brokering um, a permanent ceasefire. So, uh, so in effect, it would produce a situation from the Central European point of view, of yet another frozen conflict, no matter that it would be a different leader in in Russia. And that situation would be uh, much desired by part of the public opinion that is fearful of the of the cost of the enduring crisis for the because of the energy sector, because of many troubles that we are enduring, also because of the situation after the pandemic. And especially in the Western countries, there would be appetite to, you know, tick the box, check it out, check check the box, and and move forward to to build partnership uh, with Russia. Uh, again, hoping that Russia in the long term would become, uh, with a different leadership, again a country uh, uh, which is at the foundations of the European security system. Now, from Central Eastern European perspective, this situation would be unacceptable. And on the countries uh, like Poland, but also like the Baltics and several others from the eastern flank, standing very close to, uh, to Ukraine, would know that this is just buying time, just like many previous times. It was buying time without allowing Ukraine to, to reclaim its sovereignty and its uh, position in uh, in defending the borders, which for the European affairs could mean 
that 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 would be more like hawkish Central Eastern Europe with clear support from the transatlantic uh, broader community. I mean, particularly US and Canada. Yet we don't know if that would hold. And on the other hand, uh, there were be, there would be countries which were reluctant or slow, like Germany, to release support to Ukrainians. And they would be relieved to find out if and to find a way for, for Russia uh, to change its position uh, for the time being. So we, um, we explored this scenario uh, in much more detail, explaining that uh, such a transactional uh, approach um, where, where also Central Europe would seek more security guarantees from the US and would uh, ditch uh, European institutions uh, for, uh, for security reasons. And I don't mean just the current government in Poland, but that would probably go also from, from the side of the opposition. That would create an, an probably irreparable split in the EU into two, two blocks. And it would lose any confidence uh, of Central Eastern Europeans in a possibility of building a long-term strategic autonomy. A strategic autonomy, which, uh, as we also explained in the report, is actually um, actually in the making and has been in the making um, for a number of years. And that's why so far Europe has been uh, responding which, uh, with, with much greater uh, ability and potential to uh, to the conflict in Ukraine. That is scenario indeed number one. And as you point out that strategic autonomy might be forever lost even before it is fully acquired. Um, now before you tell us more about scenario two, I actually have a direct question, uh, perhaps that we can start off uh, in the description of this scenario, is um, it, it paints, uh, it's called United European Patchwork, and it paints somewhat of a different picture in terms of especially when we talk about further Eurozone integration and enlargement. Uh, a contrast to sort of the doomsday scenario uh, that precedes it. So um, what do EU institutions do differently here in contrast uh, to the first scenario to gain perhaps a greater buy-in from Central Eastern European states uh, and, the, um, and this sort of fissure that you've just described to avoid it? Well, probably... This is not so much about European institutions, although they are important in uh, in this process. Uh, in scenario number two, this this United European patchwork, these are primarily nation states that that drive forward uh, with the with the integration uh, desire. So you have a number of countries that is already observable uh, that have made. Uh, big steps towards Eurozone. I mean, Croatia is just joining. Croatia is not joining because of the war in Ukraine, but it's joining while the war in Ukraine takes place. Bulgaria and Romania have renewed their claims to join Eurozone and complete their integration process. And they've been very vocal about it at the time of the conflict, uh, at, at in the months uh, after the invasion. There are... Uh, there are strong voices about Eurozone uh, from within Poland uh, on the Polish opposition. There are conversations about it also in Czech Republic. 
But uh, Eurozone is not the only thing. The, the logic of joining to Eurozone, of course, is uh, that it's economically or um, in terms of monetary policy for the countries, uh, in terms of inflation, probably neutral, if not even beneficiary. So there are pros and cons of joining, but they balance out um, for the countries. But um, it means a lot for a country to be inside uh, of a Eurozone. Uh, and with that logic, Baltic states have been uh, getting in uh, when there is a potential geopolitical incursion in, into the country. And if you've seen uh, what, uh, what has happened to Hryvna, that means to savings and the prosperity of, of, of Ukrainian people. That is exactly what the, the rest of Central Eastern Europeans would quickly rethink in terms of you know, what, what pays off, what, what makes sense. This, this scenario that we here uh, see uh, do not stipulate any uh, decisive victory overall. It actually talks about a prolonged conflict. We, we assess Russia's potential to project chaos outside of its borders as a mean of influencing the world affairs as quite, uh, as quite high despite economic uh, uh, hardships it endures because of the, the sanctions. But I think we've been both reading uh, new reports about S-300 rockets being moved from uh, St. Petersburg and instead of protecting the skies of Russia, being used as uh, essentially terrorist weapons of, uh, of, of uh, indiscriminate assault on, on civilian infrastructure in, in Ukraine. So instead of those rockets shooting up uh, against uh, other missiles or warplanes, uh, these missiles are now are being used as as projectiles, and there are thousands of these projectiles that uh, Russia has in its possessions to to throw at Ukraine. So far during the the conflict in uh, you know, that since uh, February, uh, it it could have used maybe only uh, up to ten percent uh, of of that kind of projectiles, and you can imagine how much more steel and powder. It, it, is it is still capable of throwing at Ukraine just to disturb or damage this country. So because of that understanding and because of many other security challenges, we stipulate in the scenario that countries are uh, becoming to reevaluate security concerns as the, as the primary driving logic for further European integration. NATO uh, accession of Sweden and Finland is, of course, not into the EU overall more, but, but their accession is read as strengthening the European project as they will be aligned within the uh, Eastern uh, European partners in, in, uh, in protecting uh, Baltic Sea, um, a key economic zone. And uh, there are also continuous efforts of the Great Britain uh, which, uh, on the logic of securing Europe, securing uh, the whole continent from the Russian aggression, and particularly Ukraine, has been uh, heavily committed and becomes um, sort of an extended, um, uh, extended uh, hand of, of uh, transatlantic, uh, key transatlantic partners, also in delivering security to, to Central Eastern Europe. Now, uh, with all this logic uh, in place, uh, you can imagine that policies and politics of Europe will, um, will be allowing for 
new openings or new negotiations, new deals and resolving more difficult uh, situation and being more ambitious and bold about uh, European uh, European uh, setup. In that line, the scenario expects uh, uh, Britain to be slowly reversing from totally anti-EU trends to some something close to rever- reversal of Brexit by the end of the decade. Long-term um, change, definitely requiring probably, we would say, a generation, um, but, uh, but clearly seen from that perspective as, uh, as Europe will need to rebuild and understand uh, its own uh, position in the world as a, as a block that's, that uh, builds, builds uh, security out of its unity or at least a patchwork. Uh, patchwork uh, cooperation. Definitely. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, Russia um, still has the military potential to terrorize Ukrainian cities and at the same time keep Europe as its prisoner uh, in terms of uh, using energy as a weapon. Uh, And uh, definitely all the uh, socioeconomic challenges that are exacerbated by the war. Um, And in the third scenario, uh, that is actually its logic is that these um, pressure points mean uh, will uh, have the economically weaker states rely more heavily on the EU to maintain internal stability. Uh, and you also speak of social peace. Could you tell uh, our listeners a bit more on what uh, this could look like? That scenario that we are now describing, the European Demographic Deal, has uh, a bit different logic and, and comes from a bit different side of things. Um, but it, uh, it is a necessary one to consider. In, in, in Europe, uh, there is a growing disconcern for, because of the economic conditions. Also, there is a, a prolonging uh, demographic drain. There is, at the same time, uh, demographic decline because of the elderly population, particularly felt in Central and Southeastern Europe, um, where uh, where it coincides with the th- with the growth of the nationalist movements, uh, the feeling and observable fact of demographic decline reinforces uh, these force the the political parties that that uh, that are usually far right or extreme right as they uh, as they vow to protect the vulnerable. Uh, and uh, you know the the original dwellers, the, the far right, extreme right, built heavily on anti-immigration at the same time. Uh, now, because this is so uh, pronounced in Central Europe, this this trend of of far right rise, but it's not unique for Central Europe. We we put a bolder projection for the for what happens if this goes all across the block, or what happens if if such. Um, Economy, economic uh, pressures dominate the discourse on on the future of Europe, and mobilize parts of the situation. Enable uh, the far right that is growing in strength, uh, nonetheless, uh, not only in Europe but across the world, to mobilize and to build a momentum, uh, also heavily tied with with the Kremlin ties, with the Kremlin influence. Um, so seeing that danger, um, we, we can clearly observe that the current leadership uh, in Europe and European countries 
is uh, is seeking ways to uh, to contain that. Also, in the State of the Union address, we have seen, we have heard uh, Ursula von der Leyen speaking about the need for for new social measures, uh, just like after the pandemic, just like pandemic gave uh, Europe uh, new tools and uh, new rationale for for some uh, new policies uh, that address the, the emergency and increase the competences ultimately of the European Union. Here we stipulate on a on a response uh, from the EU to be able to sustain long-term support for Ukraine defense in a a parallel way, in a parallel project of of a long-term and major uh, investment into uh, social security or the feeling of of, and the measures that respond to social security um, across Europe. Many of the European countries do not have sustainable models for, for a welfare state, and especially those in the southeast and of Europe, they are they're vulnerable also because of that. So we play with the idea uh, that uh, that some from the uh, from those who advocate for more more social justice and more social Europe will uh, will probably uh, or in this scenario would probably. Uh, use such uh, such logic, such uh, rationale for suggesting increased uh, and reformed Erasmus projects or or uh, policies that, in in a broad spectrum, but also very well targeted, would bring the elements of European social policy, thus taking away some of the some of the uh, uh, tools. Of, of nationalist and far right and extreme right mm, to balance out the, the negative trends this way. But overall, this Europe uh, would mean also a more difficult Europe. I mean, that the, the, the potentially rising inflation, you know, economic hardships, perhaps less competitive Europe. Um, so it's, it's not a scenario uh, that is overly optimistic. Uh, it's, it's a scenario in which we we see certain very important trade-offs. Indeed, and uh, we might even see that the EU's institutional power does not grow. Uh, on the opposite, it might be reduced, as uh, forecasted in uh, the very last scenario. Um, and, uh, you know, a recent speech from uh, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz at Charles Prague University uh, was significant because it spoke about um, uh, the possibility of treaty change. Opening treaty change takes a very focal point in your fourth scenario, as well as you know the possible risks associated with it. So, what are the central European attitudes towards treaty change, firstly, and how might we play? Uh, we see it play out in in the context of this scenario. It's a very Timely and important question. Again, in the State of U- State of the uh, Union address, uh, Ursula von der Leyen uh, supported uh, a new convention, supported opening up the treaties. We have a clear ambition coming from the European Parliament to do so. There was a there was a, and that there was a strong push from the Conference on the Future of Europe, of course, to make changes that will adapt, but. Beyond the political statements, uh, we may imagine that the future enlargements, the 
the the expected enlargement and much wanted enlargement from from the side of Central and Eastern Europe uh, would mean that we will need to have some some treaty changes, some trade offs on the, the institutional order, and uh, you know treaty revisions are going to to come in very quickly. Uh, now. In in the scenario number two about European patchwork, we imagine it's a it's a small thing to be changed. And in this scenario that we mentioned already, there is uh, we refer to the so-called passarelle clause that allows, uh, without a treaty change, to reform decision making uh, in the EU from qualified majority voting, which concerns the foreign policy and taxation policy, primarily in the Council. As a, as a trade-off, you know, if if majority of the countries would like and had an opinion how to do it, then uh, a potential trade trade-off could be an enlargement. But you can imagine in the fourth scenario, careful for um, careful what the EU wish for, a situation in which we open uh, a larger process of treaty change, and this process initiated once uh, takes couple of years, perhaps you know, even five years to, to be complete. That process is, is considered necessary for reforming the EU with its institutional order, with the voting uh, balance, uh, especially expecting Ukraine with its 40 million inhabitants to be, uh, to be a full member state by probably by the end of the decade. With Western Balkans also joining, there are more countries uh, with individual voting rights and also the the volume of people coming in is uh, is creating a completely new uh, uh, voting uh, power uh, map across the the block. With such openings, with new powers from the probably European Parliament, with increased uh, volatility of the party system along that side. Uh, because you could imagine that uh, there are reshuffles along, on one side, the ambitions of the old radical right or the old far right parties to to create some new platform. And there are some parties that are continuously evolving and reforming in the groups of the European families, um, uh, European political families like uh, like Alde and Renew. You know, it's the, it's, it's quite quite a process that they're uh, in uh, trying to uh, consolidate on one side but but being uh, being in a in a limbo in a way uh, not being able to to complete that process mm, that will leave a lot of uh, vulnerable points in decision making and in uh, in the institutional order of EU open so uh, in this context, we are speculating about a new populism rising from exactly from coming from Central Eastern Europe, based on the experiences of a difficult pandemic years, uh, and then related to the difficulties of the war uh, efforts, post-war recovery even, and hopefully, um, we see a new momentum building up. Uh, coming also from Central Eastern Europe, responding to a little bit different sentiments and narratives than than we see them today, not necessarily being so you know far right anti-migrant, but 
but pl- that somehow playing on the anti-EU sentiments nonetheless, or anti-EU and anti-Brussels sentiments nonetheless. And with such power um, growing up from within the region, uh, we we see that it can spell trouble on the institutional order in the EU. And, and here we underline, and, and through this scenario, we underline the need and an urgency for thinking about Europe uh, and European Union as it is uh, becoming more political, uh, making the institutional checks and balances uh, adequate to uh, to the new times and the new formula of the EU. So from away from bureaucratic, liberal, uh, bureaucratic institutions without so much political powers by design to eventually uh, understanding that European institutions are political in there and they're becoming even more political. And in order to protect democratic security, uh, not just in Central Europe, but overall in across the bloc, we, we, need, uh, we need to think about checks and balances that protect uh, uh, any takeover, a hostile takeover of our democracies by, uh, by people who do not agree with democratic principles and democratic rules of the game. So that be careful what EU wish for is a sort of a explainer of, of, of what uh, we heard also from a white paper by countries of Central Europe and Nordic uh, uh, countries in the EU, uh, which which responded with a strong message of let's put a uh, you know a pause, let's put a, the reform of the European Union on hold. We're not necessarily saying that in this scenario, but we're explaining where this motive for putting it on hold may be coming from. What sort of concerns there might be um, from within also Central Europe. That that Europe should be considering, and and that clearly uh, also indicates that uh, what what seems to be realistic, optimistic scenario uh, in the line of our thinking and 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 writing is much more of patchwork. So scenario number two, rather than a grand rebuilding of of a European Union in the current context. I'm not going to say that the report cautions necessarily against top-down uh, treaty reform uh, in, in the EU, um, but uh, basing off on the recommendations in your report, uh, how might uh, Europe avoid uh, uh, the sort of, let's call it, the baseline scenario uh, where it continues to kick the can down the road uh, without any meaningful change? Well, that's, that's something uh, that doesn't come directly from scenarios. Uh, it comes with a degree of, of effort, uh, with a degree of advocacy in, in writing and discussing uh, the implications of those scenarios. Uh, part, of, part of the effort that we're, we're putting behind this report is uh, uh, our meetings and debates, uh, public discussions, but also closed doors meetings with policy advisors, po- policy influencers, policy makers across the EU. So we are going to Paris and Brussels and Berlin, but also Prague in the scope of the European Union uh, presidency and many other capitals across uh, across the EU to advocate for uh, being bold about, first of all, admitting and enlarging the EU, not being afraid of, of, of Europe uh, that is continuously and has been uh, the most successful with 
uh, with uh, the policy of enlargement in terms of reforming itself along the way. Uh, obviously, that needs to, to take place. It's, uh, so it's part of how the EU will build its strategic autonomy as well. And that push, that, that voice that comes from Central Eastern Europe um, is both a voice of encouragement or the voices of encouragement uh, for the reform that we, we see, we, we hear, and we want to bring with the report further to, um, to European capitals. But it's also a, a, a voice of looking at the, at the dangers, at the, at the small traps that are on the way. Uh, and, and one has to balance the two. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's uh, again, the, uh, there are ways and there are trade-offs in which you can think enlargement is taking place at a cost of reforming small steps uh, decision-making in, in the European Union. So I already referred to the Passarel Clause. It is uh, highly difficult. It's very difficult to... to to keep uh, unity in the council on, on voting and agreeing for the you know countries to um, uh, to have something but but there are also to uh, there are opportunities coming along with uh, uh, on one hand the rule of law conditionality the council may see uh, some trade-offs in you know dealing with Poland and Hungary which otherwise could be potentially obstructive to to processes of change in the European Union and their, uh, their ambitions and hopes of countries also in Central Eastern Europe for enlargement that the other countries in the EU may see as an opportunity also for uh, pushing, pushing a bit of uh, institutional reform where, where they see fit. Uh, so I think we are entering very interesting and potentially decisive moments, uh, yet another one, uh, for the Europeans' future. Uh, this time, it should be clearly understood that Europe is moving away from being just a peace project to a policy actor or foreign policy actor. And that's, that also means that certain decisions in the EU uh, will be rightfully called as, as more and more political, innovative or ambitious uh, beyond, beyond what was originally envisaged by uh, by the treaties uh, uh, that, that started the EU. On the other hand, there will be countries who, which are like Bulgaria already did, uh, inserting elements of their national policy and, and superimposing it on the acquis communitaire when it comes to enlargement and North Macedonia. There will be a lot of this horse trading uh, with nation states and national governments, uh, pulling their strings and pulling their uh, pulling the blanket uh, also towards uh, uh, towards their interest. Indeed, Wojtek, thank you very much. And uh, I know you have personally sent uh, a memo to uh, Ursula von der Leyen with the report, I hope. Of course, we did. Now that you're listening, Ursula, these are these are the voices from Central Europe. <laughs> that was the newsletter we, we sent last week. The report is also available for all our listeners. The link will be provided in the description of this podcast. Uh, and as well as, do be sure to check out our other publications and articles uh, from uh, Central Eastern Europe, or Voices from Central Eastern Europe as well. Uh, we should also mention our partners in uh, in the project, uh, because of whom we, we, uh, we had uh, over 20 events 
uh, offline, in person, and online uh, interactive workshops that took place in the in the past twelve months, and with wh with whom we are continuously um, building up the, the the discussions. So Euro Creative uh, France, with whom we are organizing events in Paris, uh, actually next week, Forum two thousand in Prague, uh, Václav Havel. Yeah, set up event um, conference to, to discuss democracy globally yeah, and uh, during forum 2000 last year we started we kicked uh, off uh, part of the part of the workshops uh, foresight workshops uh, Fondazione Giuseppe Di Vagno in Italy where uh, Lector in Fabula festival brought us for the first time together that meant when we sat down and started to sketch Trends and Drivers Underpinning Scenarios Forum Albach, European Forum Albach, where we had a high-level discussion on the future of Europe with, uh, with presentation of the draft of this report with Miroslav Lajczak, former Slovak uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs and um, a special representative to, uh, to Western Balkans uh, on, and uh, for the dialogue of um, uh, Pristina and Belgrade, uh, special representative of the European Union. And also Open Lithuania Foundation and Breslava Policy Institute, which are uh, which provided a lot of research, a lot of uh, background for for the report that is reflected partly in the trends and partly in the in the uh, overall day that, that, that helped us to um, to map out positions of Central European countries on on the future of Europe in the conference on the future of Europe. And the project has been enabled by a, a grant we we obtained from the European Commission uh, that uh, that helped us build this uh, strategic foresight. And I think very important direction, which we see is now growing in Brussels uh, and in many other countries where in times of uncertainty, mapping the future and scanning for uh, both potential chances, but even more so for dangers um, for our democracy is becoming, uh, becoming uh, an increasingly important uh, tool that we also contribute with. Thank you.